Welcome to the Australian Chiropractors Association podcast. The ACA is the peak body representing chiropractors in Australia. Hosted by ACA President Dr Anthony Coxon, these podcasts explore the science, art, philosophy and politics of chiropractic, as well as reviewing the latest research and discussing how chiropractors can strive for excellence in practice. Welcome to the Australian Chiropractors Association podcast. I'm your podcast host, Anthony Coxon. Rotator cuff injuries are common presentations into a chiropractic office. They can occur as single event traumas, but more commonly related to repetitive type injuries. You can see them in younger people, such as tennis players, or often in people who work with their arms above their head, such as painters and carpenters. In my practice, I know it's the middle-aged and the older age who seem to experience these injuries the most often. Typically, it's that low-grade chronic pain, often associated with postural distortion and deconditioned muscle tone, and more often than not with impingement. And I'm sure the chiropractors listening to this podcast will be familiar with this type of presentation. These can be recalcitrant injuries and at times difficult to manage. So I'm pleased today to be joined by Dr. Tim Bertelsman to help guide us through the diagnosis and management of rotator cuff tendinopathy. Now, Tim graduated from Logan College of Chiropractic with honours and has been practising in Belleville, Illinois since 1992. He has a board certified chiropractic sports physician and a diplomat of the Academy of Chiropractic Orthopedists. Dr. Bertelsman has lectured nationally on various clinical and business topics and has been published extensively. He has a postgraduate um, in, or rather, he is a postgraduate instructor at the University of Bridgeport Orthopedic Diplomat Program and is a member of NCMIC Speakers Bureau. He was selected as the Illinois Chiropractic Society Chiropractor of the Year in 2019. Tim has served in various leadership positions uh, within the Illinois Chiropractic Society. And importantly, he is co-founder of the online clinical and business resource chiroup.com, which we'll be speaking about uh, through the podcast today. Hi, Tim, and welcome to the ACA podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. So maybe we can start with the basics. Um, what's the difference in pathophysiology and clinical presentation between the typical rotator cuff tendonitis versus tendinopathy? That's an excellent question. I think in the past, we considered everything a, an itis, even the chronic problems. And now we're recognizing that some of those chronic presentations are more of an osis or an apathy. Uh, and I think the biggest difference is, is, is determining what's happening to the tissue. So in an itis, typically we're dealing with an acute situation. It may be a stretch or a strain injury. There's inflammation involved and our management is to try to suppress that inflammation, to be kind to the tissue. Whereas with the osis or the apathy, this is typically more chronic. So this would represent 95% of all rotator cuff pathology. And most of the time, that's more of a chronic compressive <clears throat> overload, excuse me, which leads to an ischemia. So that ischemia is not an excess of inflammation. It's really a failed inflammatory reaction. So our management of that problem has transitioned from always trying to suppress inflammation to recognizing when we have an apathy, we want to generate inflammation, at least in a controlled fashion. And, and we're speaking about tendon tissue here, not necessarily any inflammation or injury throughout the body, but tendons, including the rotator cuff, like to have some, some blood flow to them when they've been chronically irritated. So I guess everyone has their, you know, little set procedure for testing and diagnosing and monitoring these sorts of things. What do you feel are the key tests to help diagnose a rotator cuff tendinopathy? 
right? That's, that's one of those um, conditions that has so many possibilities. And when we look at a slap lesion, we've got a, you know, 16 different tests that we could use and yeah. finding which ones are most efficient is, is one of our challenges. Unfortunately, there's no one test that can give us all the answers we'd need, but clusters of tests can provide a lot more information. In the recent years, there have been a number of tests that have really bubbled to the top that if we're looking for somebody who has an impingement syndrome, and maybe I should explain that, that when we're thinking about rotator cuff pathology, we're thinking of it as a continuum. In the same way that low back pain, um, when we started in college, uh, we, we diagnosed low back pain. We determined it could be a strain, or if that strain involves the annular fibers, we could have a disc lesion. And that eventually was going to cause some degeneration. If there's enough degeneration, there's stenosis. And we have all of these fancy names that we come up with, and we realize that really they're all in the same continuum because it's a cycle. And the same thing's true of rotator cuff injuries, that that's certainly a continuum, that if someone has a rotator cuff tear, um, they 95% of the time have had uh, shoulder impingement preceding that. So for a long period of time, that supraspinatus tendon has been compressed or irritated or tractioned from some dysfunction. And that dysfunction in uh, the vast majority of cases is going to be scapular dyskinesis where the shoulder blade's not moving properly. So when we can identify that somebody has scapular dyskinesis, we know that's going to progress to impingement and go through nearest three stages of impingement and then all the way onto a rotator cuff tear. So the classic um, signs that we would look for, the tests that are going to be positive for that middle stage of impingement would be things like the empty can test. Remember where the patient is holding their arm out in a scapular plane in a, a straightened fashion and they're, as though they're dumping a soda can or a beer can out. And then we're going to apply a little downward pressure. And that really isolates the supraspinatus to tell us, is that tendon irritated? If, if it's um, uncomfortable, it could be strained, it could be damaged, it could be a tendinopathy. If there's no strength, then it could be worse. There could be two pieces mm. to the tendon. Yeah. And sometimes we'll call that the Job test. Uh, the other test that we'll use a lot is nearest test, and that's where we're going to stabilize the patient's scapula and then move their arm up for them. So we supply the strength to abduct their arm in a scapular plane and say, is there any discomfort going up or coming down? And then Hawkins-Kennedy test would be the third um, impingement sign that's really useful. And that's having the patient bend their elbow to 90 degrees, bring their arm in front of them at about neck level, and then push down. I'd like to think of it that you're holding your arm out, getting ready for a hawk to land on it. And then with Hawkins-Kennedy test, when we put that downward pressure on, we're stressing the rotator cuff, especially the supraspinatus. And if there's an impingement, then that tissue is not going to be happy. That the anatomy of the area, everybody's familiar with that. We've got the a hard bone with the humeral head and we've got the acromion heart on top and then some squishy stuff in the middle, the supraspinatus tendon and the subacromial bursa. So when those two are allowed to approximate, the squishy stuff isn't fond of that and it screams at us or it gets chronically compressed leading to that tendinopathy. So those tests take advantage of that mechanical uh, arrangement and create some compression and stretch and irritation in the tendons. So those would be my go-to tests, empty can, Nears and Hawkins Kennedy test. And of course, the combination of these uh, types of tests and uh, age can be a, a fairly high predictor of uh, impingement. Is that true? Correct? Oh, I, absolutely. Um, so I think you're talking about Mural and Walton study that said if we can combine four of those together, there's a 98% likelihood that the patient has a full thickness rotator cuff tear. And that would be somebody who's age over 60, which makes sense because tendinopathy is usually not something that affects somebody who's very young. 
it's something that had to go through stages. There had to be a chronic deprivation of blood supply. And then we'll see a weakness of the supraspinatus. So that would be the empty can test, sometimes called the Job test, the one where they're dumping out the can. If there's pain or weakness in that, that test, we'd probably have some high suspicion of a supraspinatus. And then if there are signs of impingement, which would be Nears test and Hawkins-Kennedy test. So when we can put three out of four of those together, now we have a 98% likelihood that that patient has a rotator cuff tear. The, the other test that really um, gives us great information is the external rotation lag sign. So the external rotation lag sign is a, a single maneuver um, that, that gives us the same data, that 98% specificity for a rotator cuff tear to, to rule that in. And this is a test that's been out for a few years, um, particularly useful. And basically, this would be the test that um, when you were at a board meeting, Dr. Coxon, you asked who would volunteer for this committee. Uh, this is what everybody's going to do. They're going to raise their arm just barely where their elbow's almost at their side, but their hand's pointing up in the air. So just a, a small raise of the hand. But this is done passively by the examiner. So the examiner takes the patient's arm with their elbow bent just beyond 90 degrees and fully abducts their arm to pull their elbow back toward their shoulder blade, and then puts their arm into full external rotation by pulling their hand back a little as well. So now we're taking that patient's bent arm behind their back, and then we let go. And a patient who has a healthy supraspinatus can, can maintain that position. Somebody who doesn't have a healthy supraspinatus is going to drop, their arm's gonna come down, they're going to grimace, and they're going to let us know, I don't like to hold my, hand, my arm in that position, my supraspinatus irritation or weakness. So 98% specific, very, very helpful. And then I think the, the last test that I like, and this one has just been out a year or two, is the DIME test, the, the dynamic isokinetic manipulation examination. So the way this works is it's basically you're performing an empty can test um, and watching the whole plane of movement. And we're going to do it in two planes. We'll do it in a scapular plane, and then we'll do it in a full abducted plane. So we have the patient have their arm at their side and it's straightened. We'll have them turn thumb down like it's empty can and then raise their arm up as high as they can through that scapular plane. When they get to the extent, then we're going to push down. So they have to contract in the eccentric fashion. And we're gonna repeat those exact same things then in a full abduction with their arm going straight out to their side, raise it up and then push it back down. So the dime test is unique because it stresses multiple bundles of fibers that so many times that, that bundle of fibers of the supraspinatus will have a tear in one portion, but not another portion. Mm. And so the dime test is able to give us a little bit more challenge in multiple planes in both an active and an eccentric resisted fashion. And it's tremendously helpful. Again, a test that has about 98% specificity for a full thickness rotator cuff tear. And so those would be my go-to tests for, for defining a tear and defining impingement. You mentioned uh, through that conversation about a scapular plane. So the scapula sits, as I remember, 20 degrees forward. So you're talking about moving the arm, not in complete uh, 90 degrees backward, but you're 20 degrees forward from that horizontal plane. Is that correct? Exactly. Yeah. 20 to 40 degrees forward. So it's important to remember, just as you said, that our, our thorax is not a flat surface. So it's not like lying your cell phone on your desk. It's more like lying your cell phone on an exercise ball. So that's mm. curved. And because of that curve, our scapula is going to have, have that angulation. So yes, the scapular plane would be somewhere between straightforward and straight out to the side. And I'll just remind our listeners that a little bit later on this podcast, we're going to go through where people can actually see 
the pictures of these tests. So if you're thinking, oh my goodness, I didn't quite understand that external rotation lag sign, don't worry, you'll be there, there'll be a source you can go to to have a look at these uh, again. So we've obviously got some pretty good orthopedic tests to use uh, when we're talking about uh, uh, tendinosis. But when would you consider imaging, whether it be ultrasound, MRI, or anything like that? Well, that's, that's changed dramatically. You and I have, have practiced for a few years, and you know, many years ago, imaging was basically anything that hurt. And mm. now imaging's gone to basically nothing unless there's a bone sticking out. <laughs> um, and so when it comes to managing the shoulder, uh, x-rays typically aren't going to provide us a lot of value because there's so many soft tissues involved that the shoulder has... 17 muscles that all have to work in concert for a, a relatively mobile joint, the most mobile joint in the body. And so the, uh, a, an x-ray that's going to define bony pathology oftentimes doesn't tell us much, an MRI may, but really the, the bottom line for when we order that MRI is would the results of that MRI change our treatment approach? So if we're going to, if we highly suspect a chronic rotator cuff tear in a 50-year-old patient who's had this for a year, there's no signs of any significant deficit, there's no signs of a rupture, would that really change if we found out, yes, there is a full thickness rotator cuff tear? And probably not. We'd initiate our trial of treatment. Whereas if we have an 18-year-old athlete who fell on their outstretched arm, hurt a loud pop, has acute pain, and can't abduct their arm, Yes, that MRI would change our treatment approach. We need to get those two pieces reattached before one of them retracts and it's no longer going to um, be a benefit. So if it's something that we're going to move that patient on to a different provider, which would typically be a surgeon in our case, then we do the MRI. If it's something where the results of that MRI are not going to affect the outcome of the, the, the treatment or the outcome, then we'll hold off on that one. So the majority of my patients are not going to be uh, receiving an MRI unless I suspect some alternate pathology or something that's going to require a surgeon. We're talking about rotator cuff tendinopathy, but it seems that supraspinatus is the, is the one that's coming up all the time. What is it about this particular muscle that makes it uh, so common to failure? Uh, I, I think it's mechanical uh, disadvantages that when we think about where rotator cuff tears happen, um, and they almost always occur on the supraspinatus, at least they start with the supraspinatus and then they can progress to the other muscles, especially the infraspinatus or subscapularis. But the supraspinatus is, as you mentioned, number one, it's the top of the list. And when it comes to where it happens on that tendon, uh, there are really two options where that starts on the, the articular surface, meaning the underside where it touches the, the humeral head or on the bursal surface, the top side. And the tears always, almost always start on the undersurface of that tendon. And if you think of that tendon as a band of bungee cords, let's imagine a the old style telephone cable that has a whole bunch of cords together and let's make them bungee cords. And we put one end of that bungee cord on our neck near the origin of the supraspinatus. And then we traction that over the ball of our humerus. So it takes a 90 degree uh, uh, angle and goes down to our deltoid tubercle for the purpose of demonstration. And now we take our arm down toward our side. When that happens, when we think about which group of the bungee cord is going to be stretched the most, it's mm. going to be the top. Mm. So if a stretch injury were the problem, the top fibers is what would fail first. Yeah. But it's not, that's not where it happens, that the tears happen on the, on the undersurface. And so that's not where they're being stretched. Think about what happens to a long sleeve shirt when you bend your elbow. It wrinkles up on that yep. inner side. It's being compressed. 
So compression is the problem. That rotator cuff tendon, the supraspinatus, is under chronic compression. It's under compression when our arm's hanging down. It's under compression when we lie on it at night. It's under compression when we lie on the opposite side and let our arm drag across our body. So that constant, com that constant traction and compression of the tendon starves it for blood, which is the nature of the problem. Tendinopathy means there's a, a failed healing response and a lack of blood supply. So once the injury comes on, we know that if you initially insult a tendon, it's going to become inflamed like any tissue would. But if you let that, if you let that injury or trauma persist over a long period of time, because you're a carpenter or an electrician or a tennis player with your arm above your head repeatedly, as you're well aware of, that's going to cause repeated injury. So after about 72 hours, the inflammatory products say, you know what, you didn't want us. We're going home. We're expensive. We got other places we could be. So they take off. And once they leave, now we have a degenerative process happening. And that degenerative process means that tendon's turning to beef jerky and it's starving for blood and for nutrients. When it's under constant compression, it's not getting them and it fails. So the supraspinatus just has the worst biomechanical or the greatest disadvantage of all the tendons. And it's the first to, to fail because of the chronic compression. Same thing in the hip with the, the gluteal tendon that it's a very similar setup. And now we're calling gluteal tendinopathy, which we called before greater trochanteric pain syndrome. We called before that uh, hip bursitis. And we realized there's no itis in these chronic problems. It's an apathy. Mm. And it's because of chronic compression in the area. So I think that's that's why the supraspinatus pays a price. Yep. That's, uh, that's you know, you've explained that very, very well. And uh, that's really enlightening. Okay. We've made our diagnosis. Now management, what are we going to do to help this person? Um, so first defining, is it an itis or is it an apathy? So if it's an itis, we're trying to suppress the inflammation. So we're going to use anti-inflammatory modalities. That's where maybe we would have a benefit with an ultrasound or an interferential, maybe not much, but at least a, a rationale to use it. Ice may be helpful and a little bit of rest or, or at least uh, rest that allows the patient not to damage the tendon, but that's the vast minority of our problems. Rarely will someone come in with a partial strain. Uh, three days later and said, my, my shoulder's hurting. You, you and I both know the story, as all of our, your listeners do, that this is somebody who's had problems for months. And so that patient is in an apathy state. And rather than suppressing the inflammation like we used to, when I graduated, all treatment was aimed at suppressing the inflammation. So we'd ice it and we'd arrest it. And if we really disliked the patient, we'd put them in a sling just to make sure they couldn't move for a long time. And that just didn't work. And so now all of our treatments are aimed at stimulating a controlled inflammatory reaction. So using a laser, using dry needling, turning the patient's shoulder into a pin cushion, or doing transverse friction massage, or getting a dull screwdriver and scraping over the top of it with our instrument-assisted tools. So all of those treatments that are now working so efficiently are aimed at initiating that controlled inflammatory reaction. And I, I don't think that you need to do all of them because we want it to be a controlled inflammatory reaction. So do you need a laser? Do you need a shockwave therapy machine and use transverse friction and an ISTM and a factor tool? No, you probably don't need all of them, but you need something in your toolbox that can initiate that process. Mm -hmm. So that would be the, the biggest issue um, for, for managing the tendinopathy. And then I, I think that um, identifying really why that started in the first place. And I guess that comes to the next question then. Um, you talked earlier about uh, scapular dyskinesis and the, uh, the scapular rhythm test, um, that's a, an important one. I guess functionally looking at what 
we need to do to help change with rehab exercise, this becomes the next level of, of care. Oh, it's a, that's a great point that um, that patient who has chronic impingement in the vast majority of cases, they've had some underlying biomechanical deficits. So we've got three groups of muscles that move our shoulder. We've got the large movers like the pec and the deltoid and the latissimus. And those typically do their job pretty efficiently. They always work. They rarely fail. But many of those muscles, when they're working, if you think about the deltoid in particular, when it contracts, it's pulling that humeral head upward toward the acromion. So now we've got the two hard surfaces that are compressing the bursa and the tendon, which anything that's degenerated doesn't like compression. It wants blood supply. It doesn't want more compression. So there's a chronic irritation from that process. Well, there are two groups of muscles that help to offset that. The first one would be the rotator cuff, that yes, those muscles generate torque and abduct and internally and externally rotate our shoulder, but they also depress and retract the humeral head to pull it down and suck it into the glenoid. And when those muscles do their job, they create an increased space. So there's less compression going on. And then the third group of muscles would be the scapular stabilizers. That would be the upper trapezius, the lower trapezius, and the straightest anterior. The serratus anterior is that muscle that's often overlooked. It runs off the medial border of the scapula and then attaches onto that Swiss ball, your rib cage. And its job is to hold the scapula up against the thorax so it doesn't wing out when you start using your arm. Well, when those muscles don't work in concert, that's when we have something called scapular dyskinesis. And the most common problem is that two of the muscles are too tight and two of them are too weak. So if we think of our scapula, we've got the coracoid that points uh, up front. And in fact, just below the, the uh, chromium in front of your shoulder. So the coracoid is where the short head of the biceps and the pec minor attach. Well, when those muscles are too tight, if you're thinking about it in your own body, it's going to pull that coracoid forward and it's going to cause that scapula to rock on the Swiss ball and wing out and, and tip a little laterally. And then the muscles that should be counteracting that is the lower trapezius attaching on the medial board of the scapula to the thorax, and then the serratus anterior on the underside of that scapula attaching to the thorax and the ribs. But when those muscles are weak, they can't counteract that force. So now we have an imbalance. And it's much like if we uh, moved our index finger in flexion and extension, we point it and flex it and point it and flex it. We could do that thousands and thousands of cycles with very little trouble. But if we put a rubber band at the tip of our finger pulling in one direction toward our thumb and a rubber band pulling in the other direction toward our pinky, if those rubber bands were balanced, we'd still have no issue. The joint would stay centric, meaning it's optimal surface relationship throughout its range of motion. But if one of those, uh, those rubber bands was much too, too large or too tight or strong compared to a weaker, thinner one, now we're going to get some deviation of that joint. And that deviation is going to create capsular stretch on one side. It's going to cart cause cartilaginous compression on the other side. And that chronic compression is going to lead to stickiness, inflammation, and eventually stuck. And so we see this in the spine. We see it in all the joints in the body, but we really see it frequently in the shoulder because the pec and the uh, biceps are too tight, which is natural from our posture all day long. And our serratus anterior and our lower trapezius is weak and inhibited. And it's a self-fueling cycle. At once one group of muscles becomes too tight, there's going to be progressive inhibition. So identifying if there's scapular dyskinesis for that, that patient is the key. And there's a couple of tests that can help with that. So when the patient with a shoulder impingement uh, abducts their arm, they typically have pain in that painful arc between 60 and 120 degrees. 
What we want to do is we want to see what would happen if their shoulder worked optimally. Would they still have pain? So we're going to have that patient run through the painful arc, and they're typically going to say, ouch, when they get to about 100 degrees, sometimes lower than that if it's acute. And then what we're going to do is a couple of tests to artificially move the shoulder. So we're going to have that patient run through it, mark the point that it hurts, bring their arm back down. The scapular assistance test, the first of these three maneuvers, we're going to artificially rock that patient's shoulder blade for them. So we physically grasp from behind the patient's shoulder blade, the spine of the scapula, the medial border with our thumbs and our hand over the angle. And as they abduct their arm, we're going to make sure they have a nice two to one ratio so that for every two degrees of glenohumeral movement, we're going to rock that shoulder blade one degree. And if the patient now abducts their arm straight through that range of motion and says, no, that didn't hurt. Well, that tells us that they have a mobility problem. That the scapula moving when they're raising their arm normally without that artificial lift, they're getting impingement. And when we, when we assist them, they no longer have impingement. So now we know our treatment needs to be directed at increasing scapular mobility. The second one that we're going to look at is it could be a stability problem. It might be that it's not, not strong enough. And so what we'll do a scapular retraction test. And for this test, we're simply going to make sure the patient's shoulder blade doesn't wing. So we're going to put our palm directly on, the, on their shoulder blade, hold the angle, inferior angle of the scapula against their thorax and rock along with it. Now we're not pinning it there so that when they raise their arm, it doesn't have the ability to have that two to one rhythm. We're gonna rock along with it, but we're gonna make sure this, the, the inferior angle doesn't come off the thorax. And if we do that and the patient runs through their range of motion says, yes, the pain's better. I no longer have that ouch at hundred degrees. We know that that patient needs stability. We need to strengthen the serratus in the lower trap. And then the, the last test, which is almost identical to the second one, except it's solely done by the patient, is my favorite. That we're going to have that patient pinch their shoulder blades together and then run through a range of motion. And so if that patient needs stability and they engage their lower trap and their rhomboids and they're, they're holding their shoulder blades and the pain goes away, it's an immediate incentive to recognize I need stability. And if I get stability, my pain will go away. So that's a motivator to allow them to see the home exercises are crucial, that you're not going to think about holding your shoulder blade there every time. But if you take an active approach to strengthening those muscles, it will make a difference and this will pay dividends. So that's the test that's probably one of my favorite tests for getting the patient to become an active participant in their own recovery. That sounds all absolutely fantastic. So let's assume that uh, this person isn't responding well, despite our best diagnosis and, and management. Um, when would you, or would you perhaps even uh, consider referral for cortisone or for other things like that? And does that, do you find that that ever assists you from time to time with some patients? Um, yes. Yeah, so we have a good relationship with pain management specialists, with, with medical physicians in our area. And I refer a lot of patients out for injections, um, the ones, especially the ones who, who don't have success, but I'm very cautious about doing that for rotator cuff patients because this patient usually doesn't have an inflammation problem. They have a degeneration problem yeah. and that steroid injection into their shoulder is probably not going to do them any favors. So in fact, there's new data that's come out that said your likelihood of revision surgery is dramatically higher if you've had a cortisone injection in the year preceding your surgery. Mm -hmm. So for these patients, I'll rarely refer for a cortisone injection, unlike so many of the other areas that we will. 
I will get an orthopedic consult, especially if they've failed treatment. So if this is a patient that we've treated for a couple of months and they're just not getting better, or if they show any signs of distinct weakness, um, that, that patient is going to move on to a surgeon as well. So there's some indications to who should be seen uh, by a surgeon and who should we manage conservatively. Uh, if the patient has a greater than one centimeter full thickness tear, and it's not responding, that's somebody who needs, needs a, a consult at least. If they have a weakness, if that patient just isn't abducting their arm and we're suspecting that they have a rupture, that patient probably needs surgical intervention. But the data in recent years has said that conservative care will perform equally well or better than surgical intervention because this problem is not the tear, that so many times um, the, the patient has a full thickness tear or a partial tear. And one of the things that, that was confusing to me early on is recognizing that a full thickness tear is not a rupture. That if we think of that supraspinatus again as that big bundle of fibers, and um, when it begins to tear, it's as though we had run a butter knife lengthwise down the tendon mm -hmm. and created a taco that has a, a divot. And if we, that's a partial thickness tear, if we take the knife all the way through to create basically a buttonhole, that we could look through, now that patient has a full thickness tear. Well, if you think of that as a horse's tail, if it had a slit running down the lake, it really wouldn't damage the integrity of that tail. It would still no. have pretty good strength. Yep. So those patients with, with full thickness tears will typically respond better to management that gets their shoulder blade moving and stimulates some blood flow as opposed to surgically altering the, the acromion or repairing the tendon as long as it's not ruptured. Now, Tim, you've done an excellent job today explaining all this to us. And I know that it's not, it's not always easy because visuals often make it easier to explain an orthopedic test than uh, verbally explaining it. How I came across Cairo up was um, somehow I managed to be on your mailing list and I had a look at some of the blogs that you've got there and they're video blogs. And the conversation we've had today is pretty much covered in a six-minute video blog that I'd be encouraging our listeners to check out at chiroup.com. But what are some of the other things that uh, that ChiroUp can offer chiropractors? Um, so so ChiroUp, uh, 10 years ago, um, I was in private practice and was active with my association, but that, that was about it. Um, and I remember one morning I had a patient who came in, Mary, and uh, Mary had a shoulder rotator cuff impingement and I, this was going to be her fourth visit. She didn't show up. So I went up front and I asked Debbie, I said, what happened to Mary? And she said, oh, Mary called in. She said she wasn't any better. Um, she's not going back and she's going to go see her doctor. And so any of us who have had that experience know how, how much that stings, that they were trusting you to, to help them and you didn't. And at that point in time, I knew that we should be doing some rehab. I knew the tests that I should be doing, but clearly uh, my, my care of rotator cuff and impingement was not the best. And so I decided to get into the literature and determine what could I do better. And I learned a, a number of things. I, we, we got every DVD at that time and uh, went on to Medline and researched the articles, talked to experts like Tom Hyde and, and other shoulder experts and came up with a protocol about what we can do. And I learned two things. One, I learned about scapular dyskinesis. Um, and number two, I learned that this probably wasn't a tendonitis I was treating in Mary, it was a tendinopathy. So my treatments that were aimed at reducing inflammation were doing no benefit for her. So um, after, after learning that, I, I had a whole new outlook that I enjoyed seeing uh, rotator cuff problems. And we know a lot of rotator cuff problems come from the neck. In fact, 30, about a third of, of patients who have rotator cuff pain actually have an irritated nerve root on the same side. 
Um, so sometimes we get lucky and by treating their neck, their shoulder pain goes away, but that means two thirds of the time, we're not going to get lucky. We need to have the appropriate treatment for the shoulder. And, and the research that we did gave us the confidence of knowing that's the right stuff. And I realized I need to do this for more than one condition. So we did it for two and three, and now we're up to 105. And we've gone through the literature, mined out the best practices, the most sensitive and specific tests, the best treatments and, and the best home care and advice. And we distribute that to chiropractors, evidence-based chiropractors throughout the world. So there's 2,200 chiropractors throughout the world that use the ChiroUp platform to learn uh, what they can do to treat patients better and then deliver that, pa that information to patients through reports. And I would, uh, we would welcome anybody who wants to, to check it out. You can see all the videos that we talked about today on that site. If you go to chiroup.com, you can sign up for the blog or you could sign up for a, a trial where you can check it out for two weeks. So I would encourage you to look at the videos that we talked about. Uh, if nothing else, you'll just go into the rotator cuff protocol. And I, um, I hope that it provides benefit for you. Uh, thank you, Tim. Look, I'm sure there'll be many of our listeners that will be keen to check out the chiroup.com uh, website. And it's certainly been my experience just having a look at it. There's some, a lot of great information there. So thank you so much for your time today and for sharing your wisdom and knowledge with us. Thank you for inviting me and I uh, hope uh, things are looking up in Australia and that we're all back on track again shortly and caring for patients the way that we wanted to. Absolutely. Well, that's it for me. Thanks for listening. I hope this podcast has been helpful in your quest for excellence and I look forward to chatting with you again on our next ACA podcast. Mm -hmm.